Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. If our aim is perfection, then we have two options. We can strive to be perfect through our strengths, or we can accept someone else's perfection as ours. That first option of striving for perfection through our own strengths, it's not really tenable, and I think we all know that because we cannot live mistake-free. Well, there is an option. You can live mistake-free if you lower the standard of perfection so that we can actually jump over the bar. But in reality, that leaves us with the second option, accepting somebody else's righteousness or perfection on our behalf, and that is a breath of fresh air. To have someone to vouch for us by providing their perfection, that is grace unmerited, and it is the privilege of every Christian. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas and Life Over Coffee. You can find me in my coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. I want to talk about this penchant that we have to strive for perfection, how silly it is. And I've titled this Lowering God's Standard to be Perfect. Perfect, because really, if we are not going to live in the grace of Christ's perfection, then we do have to lower the standard. Paul talked about this in Romans 1, where we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And one of the reasons that a person would exchange the truth for a lie is so that they can live in accordance to the way they want to. Now, in context of what I'm sharing with you here, I'm talking about a person's penchant to want to live in perfection and to present themselves as perfect free. They're into reputation management, and they're very guarded about how people think about them. I want to share a case study with you in just a moment, but if you want to find this article, uh, listen to the podcast, watch the video, then just go to lifeovercoffee.com and spend time working through this. It would be a great conversation for transformation with a friend or two. Again, titled, Lowering God's Standard to Be Perfect. Now, since none of us will ever be perfect, the most obvious solution is to find somebody who is willing to give us their perfect standing. And his name is Jesus, who gives us his alien righteousness. He was, he is, and he will always be the perfect son of God. He cannot be otherwise, and we cannot be anything but imperfect in our fallen condition. Now, somebody may ask, why would I not accept the gift of perfection from Jesus What is it about me that compels me to reject his perfection while choosing to create an illusional world of perfection? And that is a valid question, and that is exactly what I want to work through in this case study. And so let me give you an illustration of someone who preferred the illusion of perfection over the perfection of Christ. Let's welcome my friend, Biff. Biff had a hard time receiving criticism. There was something in his psyche, in his soul, that recoiled every time someone expressed displeasure with him. 
Now, as we begin to trek back in Bill's life, we see that this is a, a longstanding, habituated, shaping influence tied directly to his father, who is so critical and authoritative authoritatively harsh to him that Biff decided that the best way to escape this kind of criticism is to always hit the mark. Now, after he had left home, uh, that was habituated in his psyche, and so he has learned to live in an illusion of perfection because he disdains criticism so much. And so to compensate for this shaping influence, he strived hard for perfection, hoping he would never be critiqued, could always avoid it. Of course, the problem was that he could not hit his self-imposed perfect goal. Biff could not obey every Bible law, every principle, every assertion in Scripture, every implication, every expectation. His solution, though unaware of the deception that was that was entwined in his solution was to lower the Bible's standard. It was an unwittingly cheapening of God's law so that he could be perfect, which would put him in favorable light with everyone else. Biff stacked the deck unbiblically, and as you might imagine, in his relationships, it created collateral damage all because he wanted to look good in front of his peers. And so what I want to do in two parts here of this case study, first I want to take a look at some of the things that he did to himself when he lowered God's law while elevating himself. And then in part two, I want us to assess some of the collateral damages that this caused in his relationship, specifically his marriage, particularly with Mabel. And so first of all, let's look at what was happening to Biff's psyche, to his soul internally, as he was lowering the law so that he could elevate himself, so that he could manage his reputation by presenting himself as something that he was not in order to avoid critique. First of all, Biff was lying. Now, if you confronted Biff about this, <laughs> Biff would not say that he was lying, but he did. He would do this to get himself out of a jam, but rather than owning it, he would, he would twist the truth however much he needed so that he did not appear wrong before others, and he would say, this is how he would frame it, I'm not telling a bald-faced lie, and I guess if we're gradating lies here, he would be correct. But Biff was lying just enough to skirt the truth. A little lie was not like big lies, a rationalization that soothed his conscience. He was merely adding to the truth or taking away from the truth, just enough to alter reality to suit his agenda. He had become so adept at these small deceptions that he did not recognize what he was doing to his conscience. And so the first thing that he did to lower God's standard was he had to lie. And then the second thing, by implication, he began to harden his conscience. Through the subtle deceitfulness of sin, Biff's inner voice began to adjust to accommodate his lying. You see, the conscience is a means of grace to let us know when we are doing wrong. 
Paul wrote about this in Romans 2, where he talked about the Gentiles who did not have the Bible. They did the things contained in the Bible, their consciences bearing them witness, accusing or excusing themselves. Your conscience, it's like a sound that goes off when we think about sinning, if we choose not to listen to the ringing of the bell then our consciences will ring louder. Biff's conscience used to warn him when he was doing wrong, but he chose to, to dial it back, to silence his conscience, and he did that through his rationalizations. In time, his moral thermostat consented, muting its sound. Today, Biff's conscience can hardly hear the bell a-ringing. It's like putting a piece of tape over the warning light on your dashboard. Out of sight, out of mind. Biff's lies created a new normal for him. It's like a callus on the skin. Biff's heart lost sensitivity to where he could no longer discern right from wrong. Because of this penchant to be perfect, but in reality, we cannot live a perfect life. So he lowered God's standard so that he can go over the bar, present, presenting himself as perfect. Number one, he had to lie. Number two, he rationalized his lies, which began to dull his conscience. And number three, now he becomes blind to his blindness. I'm calling this self-deception. As a tiny bird in a nest with its eyelids canvassed over, Biff had pulled the callous skin of subtle deception over his eyes. Biff had successfully cheapened the law to the point that he believed he was better than he was. Biff could not see what he could not see. He was not as stubborn as much as he was self-deceived. Biff could now pretend he was a successful perfectionist. On those rare moments where he knew that he had made a mistake, he justified, he rationalized, he blamed the problem away. <clears throat> you can succeed at being a perfectionist by exchanging the truth of God's word for a lie. The problem with Biff was that his idolatrous desire to be perfect and his lying to cover up his imperfection he blew, it blew up his marriage. And so in part two here, let's take a look at the collateral damage. Mabel, Biff's wife, was not as impressed with Biff. That's the problem with getting married. It's not dating. Everybody else in our lives, we date. Uh, we have a partial relationship with everybody else in our life, except for the people that we live with. And so Mabel knew both Biffs, the public persona and the private persona. And let's just say that she was not impressed because she did know the private Biff. And so she saw through him quickly, and she let him know that he was a fake. The perfect character that he presented to her when they were dating was more like a Hollywood movie set. It was a facade. And once you walked through the door of that movie set, you entered into real life, which was nothing but two by fours and a whole lot of fakeness. There was no substance to Bill's life. And Mabel was never a person to mix mince words. She often reminded him of his failures. Think about this. Telling a perfectionist that he is fake 
is begging for trouble. Now, I'm not suggesting that Biff's sin was Mabel's. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that she was guilty of not seeking to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is clearly taught. This was Paul's warning, Galatians 6. You who are spiritual, you restore the Biff's in your life with a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself so that you too aren't are not tempted. She was a complicating factor in Biff's sin, even though she was not the cause of it. Mabel was emptying Biff's love cup, the metaphorical chalice that he held out, expecting her to fill with the wine of affirmation, acceptance, and approval. Mabel had no inhibition from taking his love chalice and hitting him over the head with it. And rather than seeing the light, Biff began pulling away from his wife, initially entangling his mind in lustful thoughts. And because he could not satisfy the eye with seeing or fill the ear with hearing, this is what Ecclesiastes said in 1.8, wayward thoughts could not keep up with his idolatrous requirements of his heart. Now throw in the consistent reminders of failure from Mabel, Well, it did not take long for Biff to see he needed another option to fill up his love cup. Biff had noticed an attractive lady who taught their son piano at their church. He began to look forward to each Sunday when he could drop his child off at the auditorium. In time, he struck up a conversation with her. In time, they were involved in an adulterous relationship. Biff knew it was wrong. But he did what he always has done. He justified his actions by blaming it on Mabel. The idolatry of his heart overcame common sense and the grace of God. Eventually, they were found out as those things typically go. Biff and Mabel went to see their pastor for help. Biff wanted his marriage fixed, but he did not realize the insidious realities of his heart. The depth of his sin had so entangled him that Biff could not repent. He just could not see what he needed to see because his conscience had dulled him to that degree. He did not know what to repent from or how to make things right. Lack of awareness... Blind to your own blindness is a significant obstacle when helping a person like Biff. Here's that passage again in Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning only Christians, we have the Spirit. Non-Christians are not spiritual. They are dead in their sins. But you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, Mabel did fail at this point, and at some point, that's going to have to be uh, dealt with. But now the primary thing is what Biff was doing. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says this, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. And so Biff was committing behavioral sin. He was committing adultery. And so he needed to be warned. He needed to be admonished. But it also says, encourage the faint-hearted. Biff, that means small soul. And so Biff had an ever-increasing 
feeble soul, a shrinking soul that he was doing to himself. And then Paul finished with help the weak. And then finally he said, be patient with them all. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.14. I'm sharing this verse with you because there are a couple of options that you need to take with Biff. Admonish him for his adultery, but recognizing he has an ever-increasing shriveling soul, and so you want to encourage the faint-hearted. So there is, it's almost antithetical where you're admonishing on one hand and you're encouraging on the other. Biff has never had a clear view of himself. So what you think would be easy to discern and fix truly was a mystery for him. This problem is where God calls us to be careful how we talk to Biff and how we walk him through his sin. Biff's pastor had to skillfully navigate how to tell an insecure person who strives for perfection that he is not perfect. How do you tell someone who craves your approval they are a failure? Well, Mabel did that, but that was not the approach. She was dead wrong. Her assessment was right, but her methodology was wrong. And that is something for us to to take heed to because we can do that too. Sometimes we can be so focused on our rightness that we don't give careful consideration with how we communicate that rightness to others. Mabel was failing at that point. Sometimes our rightness can deceive us or cause us to not even consider that there is a methodology that we should use in communicating to others. But Biff's pastor knew he needed to skillfully do something here because this man craved approval from anyone and everyone, and somehow the pastor had to tell him he was an abject failure. And so how do you tell a person who idolizes acceptance that he is unacceptable? Biff had lowered the law of God so low on a rung on the ladder that he could obtain perfection. Now, of course, the Bible says in 548 of Matthew, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so he's reading that sentence there thinking, well, if I have to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect, the only avenue that he saw was to lower God's law. God requires Biff to be perfect, and Biff needs to be perfect. But here's the twist. Mercifully, God provides a way for him to be perfect, but Biff rejects God's way as he strives for perfection his way. And again, lowering God's standard, altering his conscience, pretending to be okay, justifying his actions when he makes a mistake. Biff's pastor had to do all of that in the exact opposite. He had to elevate the law. He had to convince Biff that he was a failure. He had to appeal to Biff to trust the perfect Lamb of God. And so the first thing that the pastor had to do was build a relational bridge to Biff. He had some heavy truth that he needed to truck across to this man. And and this is a limitation or a liability of biblical counseling, because if you try to squish all of this into a counseling session or two with a gentleman who has been habituated in 
sin as I have described here for multiple decades. You will blow up that relational bridge. The truth will land in the, in the ravine. The relationship will be severed, and it will be more complicated to get him to a place of restoration. The pastor did not know Biff because of the size of their church, but he knew that he needed to build that bridge because the truth he had to carry to Biff could push him further into his idolatry. Biff did not make it easy for his pastor. He was quick to tell him about his high-powered job and his philanthropic endeavors. Biff was boasting in his strengths. He was elevating himself in front of his pastor. Do you see why Biff could not see what he was doing to himself? self sabotage. Do you see how difficult it was for his pastor to readjust Biff's thinking to a more precise and biblical reality? After a few sessions, the pastor did recalibrate Biff. Eventually, the pastor began to roll out the gospel in a way that Biff had never heard before. He only understood the gospel through the lens of salvation. The gospel is good for me and salvation, and I need it because I cannot save myself. But Biff had no clue how to bring the gospel to bear on his sanctification. Biff believed God saved him by grace, but he also thought he had to be perfect post-salvation. Biff was willing to accept that he was a low-down sinner who needed a Savior, but it wasn't as noticeable to Biff how to live a progressively sanctified life by trusting in the works of Christ. Biff began to learn that he would never be able to create a righteousness that God would accept. Biff would never be acceptable to God based on his works, whether those works were pre-salvation or post-salvation. On his best day, he was a beggar needing God's grace. There was only one rung on the ladder that Biff earned by his own, his own uh, merit. That's the lowest rung on the ladder. That was his. He earned that one. There are no other levels of righteousness in God's world. There's no gradations between being on the lowest rung and the perfection of Christ. The Pharisees tried to do that. They tried to create gradations so they could look down on other people, comparing themselves among themselves. All people are bottom rung sinners Christ is the perfectly righteous, top-rung Savior, and there is no in-between. We stay on the bottom rung, or we accept Christ's alien righteousness and live in His perfection. Now, you can pretend. You can live in an illusionary stratification of righteousness by creating a reputation and going through all the gymnastics and gyrations that Biff was going to, to play, going through to pretend. When this truth of his self-sabotage clicked in Biff's head, he expelled air from his lungs. It was like he could breathe again. The chains of perfectionism had bound him into a pleasing other, craving approval worldview. He never realized the depth of his bondage. And then it clicked. 
Biff learned that it was not about doing things, but about being something. It, it was an ontological reality primarily. This is who you are in Christ. He had never experienced shalom in Jesus he was never at peace because he always felt he had to work for acceptance. Going back to that long-time, multi-decade habituation that we see the genesis of somewhat in his father, but actually it predates that because Adam was the first legalist seeking to please God by his works. And so it was a double whammy for Biff. He came in Adamic, fallen, a legalist, and then his daddy shaped him to crave approval, and then he brought it into his marriage and lived it out in his life, embracing nothing and being nobody was a foreign concept. Biff began to understand, and the more this gospel penetrated his mind, the more he experienced the release from selfish ambition and reputation management. This new gospel orientation encouraged him to serve his wife rather than to manipulate her to fill his love cup. And rather than being a man with demands for love, the way that he wanted it, when he wanted it, how he wanted it, he became a man with a servant's heart. It completely turned around. He became like Christ. The perfect example of other-centered living. Biff did not have to cheapen the law to lower it to achieve his standard of perfection. He elevated the law as lived out through Christ. Now, ironically and oddly, the more he raised the law, the more, he, the more joy he experienced. Think about it this way. If you're on the stadium floor and you're looking at the high jump bar and it is about this high and you know you can jump it, uh, well, and then you raise it just above your ability. I can't jump that, and somebody else does. You can be excited about that, but you keep elevating that bar. I mean, put it out in orbit, and you say, well, I still know someone who will jump that for me. The higher you elevate that bar, the more joy you're going to experience because the impossibility gets greater, which means grace becomes more profound. After he realized that he could not keep God's moral standard, he started praising God for the son who did obey what the law demanded. Rather than trying to impress others, he became more impressed with Jesus Rather than trying to impress everybody in the stadium, he was more impressed with the ultimate high jumper. And the more he uh, impressed he became with Jesus, the more he was inclined to imitate him. It's like now I just want to imitate him. And the more he inclined to imitate the son, the more impacted he impacted those around him, especially Mabel. But it became even odder for Biff and Mabel the more he grew in Christ's likeness through his humble servanthood, the more she loved him in return. Ironically, Biff got the very thing that he desired, the love and acceptance of his wife. But it did not come because he demanded it, deserved it, or faked perfection. She loves him because he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves God so much because he knows he is a low-down, dirty, rotten sinner who recognizes that he deserves hell. 
but Christ came to give him a perfection he could never attain through his effort. The title of this is Lowering God's Standard to be Perfect. It is a case study. It would be excellent for your own personal work, uh, but it would also be great for conversations for transformation with a friend or a small group, and I would encourage you to consider that. And to help you along, I have some CTAs here that I would love for you to consider. They're at the bottom of this article. I want to share them with you now. Question number one, in what way have you lowered the Word of God to make yourself look better before others? Now, I'm assuming that you have. I'm assuming that you're like me. And perchance, if you are like me and you have, then the question is straightforward. In what way have you lowered the Word of God to make yourself look better before others? Question two, when we do this, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature more than the Creator. What does that thought mean to you? What does it mean to you when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature more than the Creator? Question three. Why do people create edited versions of themselves for public consumption? What are some of the mechanisms to perpetuate these edited versions of ourselves, to perpetuate these lies, these facades that we put forth? I mean, justification, rationalization would be two. What else comes to mind? Also, how does this mindset affect the soul? I talked about the conscious. How does it affect the soul when we do that? Question number four. If you were counseling Biff and Mabel, what would you like to know from them? And what would you like to tell them? Let's pretend that they're sitting before you and you want to help them. And you want to help them differently. Which leads to question number five. What will you say to Mabel? to help her repent. Mabel's been nasty to Biff. She did not like Biff when he did not meet her expectation, but she likes him now because he's meeting her expectation. He's being a a better person, a more consistent person. And so she likes him, but has she really changed? Biff's the one that has changed. She's changed, but it is after Biff has changed. What does Mabel need to do to guard her heart from future temptation, especially when Biff does sin? There is some work in Mabel's heart that needs to happen. You could say that Biff is is the heat of the sun bearing down, that has been bearing down on Mabel, and it has drawn out all of this anger, this cynicism, these sins of the tongue, as she's been lashing out at him. She has not been a gentle restorer. There are two people in this. Both of them are causing their own sin, and both of them are affecting each other. I talked extensively how Biff is the cause of all the sin that he is doing, Mabel is complicating that, not causing Biff's sin, but Mabel is generating her own sin. And this is exactly what James said in chapter 4. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. And so Mabel has been murdering Biff with her tongue from her heart, and she needs to repent too. And so number five is, what will you say to Mabel to help her repent? 
She didn't like Biff when he did not meet her expectations, but she likes him now. What if Biff fails again? What does Mabel need to do to guard her heart from future temptation? Again, the title of this is Lowering God's Standard to be Perfect. You can read this at lifeovercoffee.com, listen to the podcast, watch the video, share it with 1,000 of your closest friends. Let them know about lifeovercoffee.com. Tell them that you have benefited from it and tell them specifically how and say, hey, if you want to read or watch or listen, world-class resources on sanctification that really get under our skin and into our hearts, I want you to check out some of these resources. And maybe, would you just do this today? Share one article that, that you have benefited from. Share that with a friend specifically. Maybe it's this one. And then let them know why it's benefited you. Uh, and then encourage them to read, watch, and listen to it. Lowering God's standard to be perfect. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.